Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In part one of a two-part discussion, Mike is joined by Kelly Magsman, Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress and a former Pentagon and NSC official, and Mira Rapp Hooper, Senior Fellow for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and Yale Law School China Center. With the Democratic presidential primary in full swing, the three discuss the history of democratic grand strategy in Asia, noting the prevalence of both realist and institutionalist tendencies in democratic administrations. Stay tuned for a further discussion on the importance of trade strategy, defense issues, and democratic values in a future democratic administration's Asia Grand Strategy in part two. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard podcast. I'm Mike Green from CSIS and Georgetown University. And, and joining me are two of the rising stars on Asian strategic thinking, foreign policy and defense, Kelly Magsiman and Mira Rapp Hooper. So we're going to talk today about whether there's a distinctive democratic party or progressive approach to foreign policy towards Asia. My guess is there will be a lot of overlap. It's one of the least partisan areas of foreign policy or politics in Washington. And also what Kelly Mira think we ought to be doing about the China problem, North Korea, and our interests in Asia. But I want to start by asking you both kind of how you got here, Kelly. Your your journey to working on foreign policy strategy towards Asia began in? Uh, the State Department. The State Department. I w- yes, I was, uh-huh. a, I was a civil servant. I came in as a presidential management fellow during the Bush administration, actually. Um, you're allowed to say that if you're I'm allowed. Cap- I'm allowed to say that. I was a civil servant. Uh, I served proudly uh, for my country. <laughs> uh, I worked on Iraq, uh, Iran, Middle East issues, mostly before before heading to the NSC to continue to work on on Iran issues uh, late in the Bush administration. And then I was one of those classic holdovers, as everyone calls them now. Uh, The Obama team held me over in the NSC, and I stayed there uh, until 2014 when I went to the Defense Department. So I sort of started my career on Middle East issues, and I'm like the like to say I'm the embodiment of the Asia rebalance uh, because I essentially pivoted to Asia security. You issues. pivoted yourself, and as yes. the, you were the principal deputy assistant secretary of defense, which is um, that's correct, which is a job that involves both managing that rather large office, but also directing. Uh, policy. So tell me a bit about who in the Defense Department or the White House shaped your thinking uh, about Asia as you were pivoting to the pivot. (laughs) As I was pivoting to the pivot. Um, Well, obviously, you know, Mike, of course, you, of course. your your uh, scholarship. Um, many folks, Kurt Campbell, others. I worked with Danny Russell, Evan Medeiros, many names. Everyone in the Asia sphere uh, knows very well. I would say who shaped my actual kind of strategic mm-hmm. thinking. I have a couple of of mentors, uh, Dr. Elliot Cohen, who I worked for at the State Department, and he was also my professor. Uh, Runs Johns a Hopkins. fantastic uh, strategic studies program at SICE. Uh, really. Uh, one of the best out there. Maybe he, the, I'd say the best, but I'm now at Georgetown, so I have to be ecumenical. <laughs> well, he's now the dean, so he's he's fleeted up, uh, so to speak, uh, to that role, which we're really happy about. And uh, Dennis McDonough, who uh, was my sort of day-to-day management, you know, boss as deputy national security advisor at, at the NSC, who also shaped a lot of my my thinking. So I credit those those two mentors for a lot of my success. And Mira, you're from New York originally and a Columbia University PhD, and I know you had a lot of important intellectual mentors, but you started out on the nuclear side of all this, right? 
I did indeed. And, and I became an Asia security hand, um, largely owing to one Mike Green. Uh, I did my academic work at Columbia, uh, focused on nuclear weapons and alliance politics and had the great good fortune to have my first job after my PhD program be working for and with Mike Green standing up the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS, which was a wonderful baptism by fire in maritime and territorial issues in Asia um, and really pulled me over to the world of Asia security. And I have sort of stayed there ever since. Um, my subsequent jobs have allowed me to pull back a little bit, to spend a little bit more time focusing on strategy and, and big sort of broad national security and U.S. foreign policy issues in the region. Um, but my real turn towards uh, Asia Pacific as more of a regional security expert expert um, came very much because of you, Mike, and because of the chance you gave me at CSIS. People are going to think this is just a huge mutual admiration session, but I do remember <laughs> when I um, interviewed you for that job at CSIS doing our maritime uh, initiative, you know, would you have any questions for me? And you said, yeah, why do you want to hire me? Which was kind of a bold and interesting question in an interview. And the answer was, because you really understood hard power. I mean, you were working on extended deterrence, nuclear strategy, and what our allies were uh, basically thinking about uh, our commitment. But what was so interesting is both of you uh, come from progressive, uh, broadly speaking, progressive intellectual backgrounds. But I think of you both as kind of hard power realists. <laughs> Mira, obviously, your work on nuclear strategy and stopping maritime coercion. Kelly, your work on the rebalance was was about counterbalancing China in many ways. That's right. How did you guys, if I can say it, become realists? Um, maybe start with <laughs> Kelly, because you come out of a progressive background. But yeah. And I think it's a characteristic of your generation of democratic Asia hands. Yeah. There's a lot of real hard power realists. Yeah. I think of Tom Wright, um, Eli Ratner, um, a lot of hard power realists in the democratic camp. That was not the democratic party of Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter. So kind of tell me how you got there, Kelly, and then I'll ask Mira. Gosh, I mean, I don't know if I have a really good answer to that, except just basic experience. I mean, you just when you get involved on in these issues and you're serving in government and you're dealing, you know, with allies, um, and in particular when you're dealing with adversaries. Of course, I was hardened a lot by my experience on Iran issues uh, and saw the value of some of these these things. But also China. I mean, frankly, my experience uh, at the Pentagon with China and the change that China was undertaking in the region really, you know, essentially shaped my thinking about what we need to be doing as as a country. To, about, to address it. Mm -hmm. How about you, Mira? I had the great good fortune as a graduate student to work with some of the uh, really leading realist thinkers of our time, uh, Bob Jervis, Richard Betts, um, and while he was still alive, Ken Waltz, all at Columbia, um, which was really just an extraordinary experience. And I went to Columbia, of course, because I was interested in working with those giants in the field, but they really shaped the way I saw the world, um, which in turn was part of why I became attracted to Asia as a region um, as I finished up my dissertation and moved into the working world because it was the region where I saw all of the hard power dynamics that I cared about and found fascinating taking place. I had learned about alliances and extended deterrence and great power politics from examples that were fundamentally derived from Europe during the Cold War. But when I looked out and saw the world, they were all happening in Asia now. Um, so as far as I recall, I've always been a realist um, and happen to have always been a Democrat as well. As our Chinese friends like to say, you are both stuck in a Cold War mentality. Um, um, but um, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> we can get to we can get to that. We'll get though. to that. Uh, tell me then. You know, you both got into this business 
on Asia. I mean, you, you both have backgrounds in the academy and, and in other policy worlds, but you really both got into this Asia stuff in kind of the 2008, 2009, 10, 11 timeframe, basically as Xi Jinping came to power in China and as older, more senior China hands uh, probably didn't have an explanation for what was happening in China. But tell me a bit, um, we'll start with Mira, how you see China's evolution uh, and what it means for U.S. interests. Because you caught into this business as we were seeing a different China than many of the traditional Asia experts, and particularly China experts, expected. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So there are so many uh, people in our field who I respect who have been working on China as country experts their entire lives. And for those folks in particular, the changes that we've seen occur in China and in Chinese foreign policy under Xi Jinping are just absolutely you know, startling um, and very difficult to digest. And while I certainly share um, the horror at some of the things that are taking place in China domestically currently and the displeasure at the sort of more sort of turn that Chinese foreign policy has taken, um, precisely because I have been working on Asia and China for relatively less time and because I've always been interested in Asia for national security and strategy reasons, I tend to see things more through a lens of traditional great power competition. And, and perhaps I'm a little bit less startled by um, what we've seen out of China. Um, what I mean by that is the fact that China is, of course, a rising power. And while, of course, I do not believe there is anything inevitable that need bring the U.S. and China into direct conflict with one another, I do think that competition um, is always likely when there is a dominant power that has a strong foothold in a region like Asia, as the United States does, and a rising power that seeks to regain its footing in its own region as well as globally. Um, I tend to think that some amount of tension between those two powers is likely to be the norm um, and indeed can be managed, although it will um, and already is the fundamental foreign policy challenge of our time. Um, so to my mind, these dynamics, uh, because of the vantage point I come from and the fact that I come to them relatively more recently, may see seem a little bit less surprising um, than I think they do uh, for the extraordinary China scholars in our field who've been working so deeply on China for so very long. Kelly, some of the senior China hands have been a little grumpy about your generation of foreign <laughs> policy thinkers. Um, is it just because you think a, you guys came into this business when China was showing a different face to the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part. I mean, I think what Mira said is correct. I mean, we our experience with China has been very different. We come at it from a different angle. We, we're not deep China scholars sit there and study the issue uh, for for decades and decades, and we see it from a more strategic lens. I also happen to see it. You know, when I was at the NSC, I was also the senior director for strategic planning, and so I see China in the context of a larger global uh, set of challenges to the United States. And so I come at it from that direction as well. Um, and I do see a competition lens, but I also see uh, the competition and the importance of what we do here in the United States to make ourselves ready for that competition in the next century. And I think that is another lens that I view it at through also a domestic decision-making and policy-making lens. That may be the most progressive part of a progressive foreign policy strategy, Georgia, is the, the debate about the role of the U.S. government in building up our competitiveness economically at home, where Republicans would generally be more of a laissez-faire yeah. uh, free market approach. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big debate opening up about, I mean, we're obviously not a state-driven economy, but, you know, whether or not there's industrial planning, for example, what kinds of investments we make in our research and development infrastructure. Um, and those are things that I think progressives and Democrats are going to focus a lot on, on with, with respect to China strategy. The usual dig, although it's not really completely accurate, but the usual dig is that the Republicans tend to be the realists or maybe the neocons. Democrats tend to be liberal institutionalists. You know, Bill Clinton ran on more multilateralism. And Barack Obama ran on more multilateralism. His first national security strategy, which you probably worked on, um, you know, I worked on the second one, but that's... (laughs) Okay. Well, the first one, you know, posited that the U.S. and China... Uh, would come together over global issues like climate change. It was not the first time, by the way. I mean, the national security strategies under Bush, the first one also said the U.S. and China would come together around terrorism. And um, every national security strategy up until 2017 somehow posited that U.S.-China relations would be managed by common challenges we face. But it seemed to me like a tension within the Obama administration. There was this liberal institutionalist impulse that rivalry was something you could easily manage by focusing on global challenges um, like climate change. But by the second or third year of the administration, it seemed pretty apparent that wasn't the case. And you always struck me at the Pentagon on the other side of that debate, not saying global challenges are important, but balance of power, regional security, these traditional alliance issues, they matter. Is that fair? Do you think I get, that tension was there? I think that that is absolutely a fair assessment of the debate that was happening uh, in the administration. And I, you know, of course, I can argue both sides of that debate. I do think that <laughs> work, work together. <laughs> I did actually. I do think working together with China on on climate is a huge, important priority for the United States, or at least it should be. But at the same time, you know, I was dealing with the day to day, you know, changes in the situation in the South China Sea. Um, obviously, China's activities around the region, pressuring Taiwan, et cetera, uh, the East China Sea tensions, and so we were watching in real time, you know, the face of China changing, in particular when it came to the United States and security issues. And the Chinese were very good at running plays, you know, where they try to obfuscate and focus, you know, leadership conversations on the things that are in their mutual interest and sort of try to bury what they're actually doing uh, on the ground. And so in the Pentagon, our job was to focus on the downsides right. <laughs> of the relationship. I was in the Pentagon with Kurt Campbell in the Clinton administration. And I think both Clinton and Obama administration's Asia policy shifted towards a more pronounced balance of power focus. And it came out of the Pentagon in both cases. That generally doesn't come in a Democratic administration from the White House or the State Department. So what about institutions? I I assume you have not given up on liberal institutional approaches. What's the role of institutions in Asia? I mean, you guys saw ASEAN kind of not function, uh, you know, a lot of multilateral diplomacy, well played, didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but going forward, I'll start with you, Mira, on this one. What's the role of, in, a, in a progressive democratic foreign policy vision? There's a clear balance of power piece. What's the role of institutions? Are we, is multilateralism dead in Asia? Can we revive it? What's the prospect? So it's, it's a great question, Mike, and I'll start out by tangling with the premise just a little bit. Sure. I tend to see balance of power politics and institutionalism as something of a false dichotomy or at least somewhat reconcilable um, because, you know, they're, they're really uh, ways of talking about how you're emphasizing things, what um, what elements of foreign policy you like to emphasize, where you put your heavy foot, what to, tools you're prioritizing. Um, but I think we can accept that we are absolutely 
really thinking long and hard about the future of the balance of power in Asia as you know a fundamental foreign policy question of our time, while also agreeing that there is a role for institutions as a means to further our interests and allied interests and global interests in the region. Um, so to start out, you know, there is absolutely an interest um, in renewing American commitment to regional institutions, which I dare say has been lacking in the last uh, few years. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, performance by ASEAN and, and the United States attempts to work with ASEAN produce some lackluster results. Um, but it doesn't mean that the attempt didn't have some value, namely, um, as you so often say, Mike, Asia is a region where part of the value and part of the battle is just in showing up. Um, and the commitment to those institutions is part of reminding our partners in the region that we consider ourselves a Pacific power um, that will be around for the long haul. Um, but of course, alliances are in and of themselves an institution, um, although one which tends to emphasize some more hard power elements. Um, but they are institutions that facilitate cooperation amongst treaty allies, even if they're not open to everyone. But I also highlight a third category of institutions, um, which is the fact that we're going to have to think about areas in Asia which currently are ungoverned or undergoverned, but are going to require multilateral governance in the future going forward. Um, there I'm thinking about everything from internet governance to AI governance, um, places where we really don't have international governance thus far and where countries like China are really unlikely to sign on to the way that the United States and like-minded partners think about those domains. Um, so potentially coming up with new forms of international institutions and regimes that are very much about Asia and uh, I dare say, competition in Asia, even if they are not universal in their buy-in. Um, and finally, I'll mention a fourth category, which is the fact that competition in Asia and with China is taking place over various forms of international order and institutions themselves. Um, so, of course, one of the things we've seen China do in just the last several years is proffer its own new regional institutions in the form of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and the Belt and Road Initiative, which, you know, is sort of loosely an institution, although it's far too sprawling to really be considered in traditional institutional terms. But the overarching point in this fourth category is the very shape of international order and international institutions in Asia will be part of this great power game that plays out um, along with the participation of other regional states over the coming years and decades. So the United States absolutely has to be engaged in institutions in Asia, because shaping the landscape in Asia is what this is all about. So no doubt about it, the U.S. is absent uh, WTO meetings, ASEAN, we're, so showing up, you know, the old Woody Allen line, nine-tenths of success and life is showing up, that, that's a critical uh, tactic uh, going forward. But, you know, Clinton came into office promising to strengthen APEC. He ran on that in New Hampshire, actually, and building institutions. And Obama came in promising more institution building, in particular, uh, the strategic and economic dialogue with China. I'm, what I'm hearing is a, almost a realist theory of institution building, that we have to be there to compete with China so we don't lose ground. Is, and that may not be fair, but, but for Kelly, is there a big democratic, can you imagine a democratic administration coming in with some big design for architecture in Asia? Is institution building really about holding the line, showing up, preventing a vacuum that China will fill? Or is there, are there some, some things you can think of that we could 
do. I mean, yeah. bilaterally with China, multilaterally. Yeah. I mean, I think there. I think it's going to be a little bit of both. I think some of it's going to be holding the line. I think um, also a new Democratic administration is probably going to put a big emphasis on multilateralism, just in part as a contrast to what we're currently mm-hmm. seeing uh, in Asia. And of course, that's also, I think, reassuring to our Asian allies and partners who are, don't like the idea of being locked into this kind of you know, U.S.-China dynamic. So, yes, I do think you'll see that. Um, one area I think we should emphasize is, and I think progressives think about this a lot, are the importance of our democratic values in the context of some of this. So, to Mira's point about you know building up institutions around the challenges that are going to shape the future, whether it's AI or climate or pick your, pick your issue that's going to require some multilateral governance, I actually think that's going to come in the form of maybe more ad hoc arrangements mm-hmm. uh, like we've seen in the past. And I think the core of that ad hoc arrangement, at least from my perspective, needs to be democracies, because I do think that democracies have a qualitative advantage uh, in some of these areas, and in specifically in the places where we are competing with, with China. Um, we don't want China shaping the rules of the road on artificial intelligence. <laughs> we want to be shaping the yeah. rules of the road. And so I do think you'll see, you know, I think, you know, the Vice President Biden came out and talked about a summit of democracies the other day in his speech. You know, if you look at that through like an Asia lens, where could d- democratic countries partner collectively in, an, in maybe co and ad hoc manner to do things. I think one big area is digital trade. I think that the United States could lead a multilateral initiative through our democratic partners, the Five Eyes, the EU, mm-hmm. and others on digital trade in particular. So that's something that's at the front of my mind. It was something that we talked about in our recent China strategy, but that's going to be one of the more immediate issues I think we have to take on. So I would say gone is the idea which I saw in between the lines of the Obama national security approach initially, that these multilateral institutions and cooperation will transform great power politics. And instead, we got to do it because, as Mira said, there are these ungoverned spaces, internet governance, rules for digital uh, trade, 5G and so forth. Um, and just to protect our interests, we need to work with other like-minded states and and in a, in a way that I assume you would say is eventually inclusive of China, Yeah, but but not where China gets in and writes the rules. We want to write the rules and build out <laughs> from there. So the curmudgeon conservative rebuttal on the Democrats' support for multilateral institutions is this is just an excuse to not spend money on defense and hard power and to say, we got this covered through... Uh, you know, classic liberal Kantian institution building. So we're not going to have to spend a lot on defense so we can spend more on things Democrats really like to spend money on, social welfare, education. You make the case compellingly, we got to do multilateral institution building because there are real issues that have to be addressed. But what about the defense side? Do you think a Democratic administration, one thing about Republican administrations, they predictably increase defense spending. You were in the <laughs> Pentagon. Yeah. Uh, is there a story you can tell us that will be reassuring about where you think a Democratic administration might go? I mean, we have yeah, I don't know how many hundreds of candidates, but yeah, yeah. I, I think we have a compelling story to say. I mean, frankly, you know, some of the budget decisions that you know were made through the this current administration's uh, national defense strategy were things that were incubated during the Obama era because um, we were looking at you know not just how much we spend on defense, but what we spend it on. Incubated within the Pentagon. Yes, yeah. incubated within the Pentagon, and so you know the the investments we make with respect to competing, especially in Asia, are going to be investments on things that we haven't traditionally invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be space, and it's going to be cyber, and it's going to be AI and technology. And it's not necessarily going to be aircraft carriers and you know surface fleets that are huge that are just you know sitting ducks. So I think there's a qualitative aspect to uh, defense spending that needs to get injected into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's always quantity. I mean, of course, levels are important. 
and sustainable and predictable budgets are important, but more important is actually making sure we're spending on the right things to be competitive in this century. And I think you will see uh, a new administration, Democratic administration, make serious choices. I think that there is going to, you know, obviously I think we can do a lot with our defense budget without spending a ton. I think we can be more creative in how we think about defense in the Asia Pacific and what we spend the money on. So I I guess I come at it from a more qualitative lens Mm -hmm. than necessarily quantitative one. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.